Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. You can be the next Albert Einstein and probably never touch technology yeah. before 18. Yeah. I, I believe that completely. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, welcome back to another episode of the True Prescription Podcast. Today I talk to author and comparative uh, education speaker, Taru Clavel. Her new book, World Class, came out uh, in August of this year. And for her personal and professional truth, she actually combined them. She talked about her separation from her husband, which is something she hasn't spoken about on camera or on mic before. And some of the challenges that were contained in that process, but more specifically, how she learned to really live life from the inside, meaning trying to make decisions going forward that were based on her her true thoughts or true feelings and not on the, the fantasy of what she hoped could be. And so she goes into that. We talk about why education in the U.S. is flawed and what other countries are doing that we could benefit from here in the U.S., She talks about uh, technology and particularly cell phones and cell phone technology and how it could both positively and negatively affect uh, our children and the education of our children. We kind of comically discussed interior design and the the relations or correlation between interior design and and parenting. And then we finished out with just the whole publishing process. Um, I know uh, a lot of you guys listening are, are in creative space, maybe writers, just trying to give you some insight onto that process of getting a book proposal, and then actually writing the book. So she talks about some of the challenges she faced in, in, in that arena. And that's that. So uh, sit back, relax, and take a listen, and I'll see you all soon. Take care. All right, good people. Welcome back to The Truth Description, another episode. Today I'm having the pleasure of talking to Ms. Teru Clavel. Teru is a comparative international education speaker. She's been interviewed on CNN, uh, Fareed Zakaria's show, The Today Show, CBS This Morning, CNBC, Squawk Box, among others. And she's a mom of three. Hey, Taru. Nice to see you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dr. G. Uh Her book, World Class, chronicles her journey halfway around the world through Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, to understand education systems and most importantly, the best way for her to educate her children. And out of all this, she figured out really what's the, a, a good way for uh, for children to learn. So I'm I'm happy to have her as a also a parent of three to come uh, on the show and, and talk to the people not only about her truth but about you know how we can better teach teach these as my grandmother said children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So uh, let's jump right in, Teru, to the truth prescription. Uh, are you ready? 
I think so. We'll you see. Think so? You'll we'll see. see. Okay. So for my new listeners, or for my old listeners, you know what the show's about. For my new listeners, the truth prescription really dives into the truth. I mean, the, the fundamental fact is, unfortunately, we're afraid of the truth. Why are we afraid of the truth? Because it's uncomfortable. Nobody likes it. It scares us. It's uncomfortable. Blah, blah, blah. What we try to do here on the show is show that although the truth can be scary, you can still be courageous and move through it. Because once you're stuck in a, and not accepting a particular truth, you're not going to be able to move forward. So, Taru, you want to do personal or professional first? Whichever your listeners may want to hear first. <laughs> Both can be scary, so. Okay, let's do scary, but you're going to be courageous. You're going to put on your courageous hat today and you're going to move through this. Okay. Because you got it. First of all, anybody that can pub- publishing a book in itself requires a supreme amount of being courageous in the face of fear. So I know you got it in you. Oh, thanks. So let's do let's do personal. Let's start with personal. People like the personal. Okay. People like to get to know you. So tell us a story, Taru, about a situation in your life, in your you don't have to tell your age, but from when you were born to all the way now, that in your personal life that uh, maybe it was a truth that you were either ignoring or that you were unaware of that once you figured it out you were able to break through in a certain way? So on my way here, (laughs) I considered what I may say. Okay. This is a big thing for me to come out and say in public because I haven't. So I don't know if I've actually broken through in terms of what I've learned, what's on the other side. But Okay. So I'm going to take a step back. And this may be both professional and personal, but my book is about how in 2006, I took my two kids at the time with my husband to Hong Kong. And I was there for four years. And then my third child was born in 2009. And then we were in Shanghai for two years from 2010 until 12. And then we're in Tokyo from 2012 until 16. And then came back to the US, but not back to New York, our hometown. And we were in California for two years and then finally moved back in Palo Alto, right? Yeah, we were in Palo Alto. And then uh, moved back to New York City the summer of 2018. Okay. And something that happened along this journey, and especially towards the end, that wasn't a part of the book. Because frankly, I sold World Class on a book proposal and got a deal with, with Simon & Schuster imprint Atria in the summer of 2017. Okay. And I had one year to write the book. So I had to submit the manuscript at the end of the summer of 2018 and then had a year before it was published because it just came out recently. And what happened along that journey, Mm -hmm. literally as I was finishing up my manuscript was that my husband and I filed for divorce. Wow. And it's really a difficult thing to kind of put my, get my head around because my book is about how I raised my family. And then at the end, kind of, what am I going to do? How am I going to share this story? And not that actually he is a, I don't want to undermine or or anything about his role as, as a parent, but he's not really a huge part of my book world class. He was traveling, I would say up to five out of seven nights a week anyway right. while we were overseas. Right. You were mostly involved with the education of the children. I was a hundred percent. And along the way I did start working or, and I went back to school in 2011, but I've never really talked about that out okay. loud. So. Okay. Well, that was big. That, that, that is a big thing. <laughs> and I am um, presently, hopefully towards the tail end of, of my divorce, process, but it's yeah. like the backstory of my book that 
isn't in the book because I really wanted to focus more on education and the comparative international education angle. Yeah. It's a hard truth when the relationship doesn't work out. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody would ever, I got married in my, in my twenties and you believe in every romantic ideology out there that you're going to end up, you know, maybe not necessarily a picket fence, but some kind of a cliche like that. And and you want to have your kids and you want to be living happily ever after. So when that falls apart, it's a whole new kind of rebirth and uh, rediscovery. Well, so for me, I'm in my second marriage now, right? So for me, when I got divorced, I realized that I had this thing in my head where my role was to take care of people Mm -hmm. and my needs weren't that important. So Mm -hmm. that was the truth that I came to out of the relationship. And having to change that in order to choose someone from a different place that, you know, I have my thing, you have your thing, we come together, we make a a better thing, Mm -hmm. you know, being very simplistic. Is there something you can say that you learned about Taru that led to the the ending of the relationship? Obviously, listen, I don't know who filed, but everybody everybody has a a part to play, right? It takes two to tango, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you were completely, completely innocent, the fact that you would even get into a relationship with someone that could eventually end means that there was maybe something that you could learn. Is there anything, any truth that you think you found out about Taru? And if it's not, then it's not. Because it's still ongoing. I mean, my divorce took forever. It took four years. I mean, from beginning to end. Wow, that does not give me a lot of hope. But thank you for sharing for everybody who's listening. Um, You're going to learn a lot of patience if it happens. That's what it taught me. I mean, I had no patience before mm -hmm. that. And so going through that process taught me a ton of patience. And so, you know, there's there's always gold at the end. But when you're going through it, it's like, this is a pain in the ass. (laughs) No, there are times that are excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Especially when you have children involved. Absolutely. And I'm still learning. I'm still okay. figuring out my truth, I guess. Uh, well, the, we'll say the truth. The truth. Because there is no your truth or my truth. There I like is that. Thank truth. you. Yeah, the truth. <laughs> there's only one truth, right? The sun comes up, it goes down. That's it. Thank so you. there's, you know, our perspective on things is different. But I think the truth is the truth. You know, Jeff's got on a gray T-shirt. That's the truth, right? We, <laughs> we, we, we have to look at things very... So I'll say this, as a scientist, and I'm a physician, so as an applied scientist, some, some of it's easy, some of it's hard, right? Because when you're scientific as you are, you can disconnect the heart and the brain a lot of times, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's helpful, where the brain is helpful is that you can look at a situation as it is, black and white. Those are the facts, period. Now, when you talk about being in touch with your feelings and connecting the two, that's a whole nother conversation. I've talked about that in other podcasts. But my point is you have a lot of power being someone who, who's, who's very analytical. Once you get the, the emotion out of it, when you need to, you can look at situations very, you know, uh, very starkly. This mm-hmm. is what it is, period. End of story. Yeah. And that can help you in the end. Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. No, it's so interesting you, what you mentioned about being objective about your decisions and looking back in, in 2020 hindsight. I, again, I am, I'm, I'm towards the tail end of it, I hope, but yeah. I would say it's really, I was maybe too idealistic in my 20s. I was raised by a single mom for the most part. And now that I am a parent of three, I look at the way I was raised and how I don't want to repeat history, how I was so kind of ignorant about how to be maybe invested or smart in my marriage or what knowledge I didn't have prior to 
getting into a relationship. And I, and I, and I'm so kind of keenly aware of, of that, that I talk to my kids all the time about, I was even talking earlier to Grace about, you know, I think I had three conversations with my mother ever about sex and they were interesting one line comments or, and she's very Asian kind of in her values in some ways. And that is very different when you're growing up in a very capitalistic Western and I would say more selfish American culture. Sure. I took many classes. Um, I have a master's. I'm second way through my, my second master's where I'm half Asian. And I was always told, well, you're the model minority. You follow the rules and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And I was like, but I still had a different kind of an experience. Yeah. And so growing up where I was, I feel like I was the only one in my grade who spoke a different language at home than English. Mm. And then wanting to have this sense of acceptance in, in like the, I'm sorry to say, like the kind of white male privileged society. Sure really formed my decisions. Hmm. And I look back on that and I think it's, it's such a shame in so many ways. And so, I mean, if, I don't know if I was to say, what is the truth? It's, I don't know. I wish I were just smarter. I mean, 2020 hindsight, I, I wanted to see what I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And that's really scary. It's really easy to put your blinders on and have rose colored glasses. But I mean, mm-hmm. talking about the truth, it's really important to deal with what what you don't want to deal with. That's yes. probably more important than anything else, anything. really. Yeah. And yeah. speaking about education, I'm, there are two things that I'm, I always get aggravated why no one taught me when I was in even elementary school, right? Dealing with the truth or, or really self-observation, objective, being objective with yourself, and then money management. Those two things are just not taught at all. And uh, they're so critical to things that we do every day. So to your point, it's something that we're, we're, we're not really... You know, given information about. Well, and, I would uh, say when they talk about some of the reasons marriages fall apart, they say money and children, <laughs> right? Two huge stresses. <laughs> and I don't think I ever knew what the realities were and how hard marriage is. And I would say oh, yeah. compounding my situation was I was suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm an Ivy League educated woman. Yeah. And I did have a career before we went to Hong Kong. And I gave all of that up and it was fine because at the time I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on my children. But then when you go overseas and you don't necessarily have a work visa and your identity becomes trailing spouse and you're somebody's wife. Yeah. And for a while it's kind of, okay, you're living in the, you know, in this luxurious lifestyle as an expatriate, but then you kind of think, okay, who am I? Aren't I more than this? And so, you know, and that, and that's really hard. So by the time we were in Shanghai in 2010, I I decided I needed to change who I was. And I went back to school and I started working. But then what ends up happening is you have another change in your relationship, in your dynamic. So my husband was thinking, okay, so I am a trailing spouse. I'm at home. I'm taking care of the kids. And when you want something bigger, it's like when I change, everybody around you has to change. And that may not work for everybody. (laughs) It's very difficult. So I, I just wish I had the knowledge and I don't talk about that in world class. But in 2006, when I hopped on this plane to go to Hong Kong with two kids in diapers, yeah. no one said, do you know what that means? What happens to your identity? How long are you going to be away for? Yeah. And it, I was so willing to accept the adventure without kind of thinking about you. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or any of the, the consequences, good and bad. Yeah. I think that's good. I, th- I, think, we can, okay? I think we can stop there. I, 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 I feel Well, I'm going to say this one thing to you, that don't feel ashamed. This is my 65th episode or something like that. 
I've had at least 20 people tell me that they've talked about stuff on here they've never said anywhere. I'm not you surprised. Know, you know, to, you get people crying? I've had one. I've yeah. had one tear up. I know it's in a, you know, it's an emotional thing. I don't want to, you know, push you too far, but I think it's the point you're making is very important for the listeners to hear that you need to be really in touch with your identity. Who are you? And when you go into situations, try to base your decisions on that. And sometimes if you get caught up in, really what you're talking about is the fantasy. You get caught up in the fantasy instead of the reality. You can end up in a, you know, in a situation that may not be best for you. Now, I'm always an optimist, right? Because out of all this, yeah. right? Bam, right? World class, right? If you didn't go on this journey with exactly. your children, there would be no world class. It may have been something else, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been a world class. So it still worked <laughs> out, but I think, the net net of it is it sounded like you were growing in, 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 in a particular way that was in opposition to maybe the thoughts or the fantasies or whatever that your husband had. And as, as that, as you grew in that way, he couldn't sort of accept the truth of that. And that's, you know, that's where the conflict started. And um, I would agree with that. And it's hard to, yeah. you know, if maybe you can have me back on next year and if yeah. according to your four year plan, it would have to be uh, two and a half years from now, but <laughs> since you know, there's only so much I can and can't talk about right now because we are still in the midst of, of of the divorce. But I just I would like to add. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a little plug here Go on ahead. Friday night. Yes, being a single woman now, which I haven't been in a long time. I got married in 2003. I just went online. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see a show tonight. And it was Friday night and I didn't have my kids, which is a really new thing for me, yeah. right? Because I always had my kids with me. Sure. And so I bought tickets. There was two tickets left in the whole theater for this uh, play. Have you seen it or heard of it called Slave Play? I haven't. Phenomenal. This is my plug. They didn't okay. pay me, but okay. I literally left the theater dizzy with wow. emotion, completely dizzy. I felt like I was in a film in Times Square where the whole sky and, and cityscape was... Um, was swirling around me. And it's about our history of oppression in this country and how we are still dealing with it within our own context, within our own parents and grandparents, and how it's embedded in our hundreds of years of history and gaining acceptance and the roles we play and our identities in that. And I don't think there's a person who sat in that theater who didn't figure out, who who wasn't challenged by, Mm. so where are you on this spectrum of the oppressed and the oppressor? you have to have a point of view. And all I could think about was, wow, that really is interesting in terms of having grown up the way I did in a culturally Japanese home in the United States, who the majority was, who makes the societal rules, who's sitting on the bench, mm. you know, what's going on politically. Mm. What's my role in all of this, both in my personal decisions and within the larger community and society. So yeah. I highly recommend it. Okay. Slave play. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where it's almost intriguing because it has like a basically an NC seventeen rating. <laughs> so before you check out, it says you know all this content, adult nudity, sexuality, all this stuff. Oh. Yeah. So I mean, it's even more like ooh, I'm doing something naughty on my own, you know. <laughs> but 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 it's 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 fantastic if if you have uh, a tolerance for that. Maybe the first, yeah, maybe the entire thing. <laughs> I was going to say maybe just only the first twenty minutes. No, okay. but it's pretty. It's pretty in your face in a, in a very intentional and, and powerful way. When you go to things and you're affected by it, sometimes you're affected for like the moment, right? Mm. But clearly you're still affected because you're talking about it. Do you think it's going to change the way you, you do anything? Yes. Okay. And, and that's, 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 that's big. powerful. That's huge. That, that's up there with the top five, um, any kind of artistic that's works huge. that I've, it's huge. And yeah. I think anybody who leaves that theater would have the same 
kind of impression. It was just brilliantly done. They had mm. four interracial relationships and two gay relationships and they and different ages and in the way they wove it all together with the history and the present. It was just it was very very smart. Mm. Very okay. smart. Whoever wrote and directed Slave Play, if you're listening, you did a great job. I think all creatives, even me as a as a film, I've done a couple films. You want that, you know. You want to have an. I mean, if you're making it for the right reason, you want to have a a piece of art that affects people that in a real way, you know. No question. Okay. Yeah. You ready to jump into some questions? Here we go. Okay. You know, I think I'll start with some light. Uh (laughs) (laughs) We can do that too. Yes. How do you think, because you you started, you know, you had this HGTV show you were the host of, right, of an interior design show. This was years ago, but. A long time can ago. You, a long time ago. I know, <laughs> I know. Can you compare and, and, and think about how interior design is similar to parenting, specifically like educating, you know, uh, your children? Well, I can think of a really top level thing right away. Okay. Something that drove me crazy about interior design okay. was the way you make money in it. And at the time, it was commission-based, right? So the only way to really make money as an interior designer is to do mass market stuff like Ikea, or at the time, it was Crate and Barrel, or just, you know, stuff, you you buy it kind of cheaply. It's kind of disposable furniture on the Ikea end. Mm. Online kind of purchasing was at that level in terms of furniture was just kind of starting, so it wasn't really a huge market yet. Or the other way to make money is to be really high-end and you take commissions. And I was doing more high-end stuff. I would have loved to be on more of the Ikea end of things. But, you know, to, it, it drove me crazy. It really upset me that you had to basically say, you know what, you can buy that sofa at Ikea for $300, but the only way I can make money is for you to spend- 500. Oh, five, no, no, no. <laughs> Try like 15,000. You know, wow. with the, the with the customization, the right size, the right the the fabric, the trim, it, it was just like, and it and it and it kind of gave me the creeps, mm. you know, because I don't I don't I think that's so wasteful. It was such an extravagance. It was just like basically throwing money away. Yeah. So it felt like this. It, it is the luxury kind of interior design at the high end. Yes. And absolutely. so when I think about education, something that keeps me up at night is how. In this country, in the United States, it's not an even playing field. If you have money and you can live in a high tax district, you can send your kids to a top-notch public school for the most part, yep. right? And you have enough money for private school tuition, which is anywhere on the low end in the 20,000s yep. per year. Low and end, on the yeah. high end, 50. Yep. 50. Yep. Sometimes yep. 60, depending on where you are yep. with all the- these, And these are for little people. This is, for we're not talking people. about high school. Yeah. I mean, even in, in New York City, when you talk about pre-K levels, I mean, they're barely in school, right? And you're talking right. tens of thousands of dollars yep. a year. Yep. I feel like in that sense, you have this, you know, it, it shouldn't be a luxury. Interior design, fine. Maybe at the high end, it can be a luxury item. But in, in the US for education, it should be free for everybody because it is a public good. The fewer highly educated people we have, the worse it is for this country. And when I think about our higher education system, it to me is literally a crime that many of our top universities charge 60 plus thousand dollars a year for tuition. And you're, you're setting it up so that only the elites can go. I mean, people say, oh, the middle class can afford it. That's not true. Right. Our middle class is, is, is dwindling, you know? And, and so, right. and then, and you think about those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, 
the chances of them even getting to a private institution like that. I mean, the gap is just increasing so much. Yeah. And in other countries, because my area is comparative international education, the top universities in most countries are not only free, they are public. Right. So there's accountability and transparency at the levels of who they admit, how they admit them, right? Whereas there are plenty of lawsuits now against Ivy League universities now because they want the transparency. How did you decide these Asian Americans couldn't get in, for example? Right. But they're private institutions. They can do what they want. But then they do yeah. have federal you know, tax breaks. So it's a very fine line. They, they, they can operate however they want with legacy admissions, with contributions, mm -hmm. you know? So how fair is it? So that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of interior design. The, and The un, unfair playing field. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I was, um, I did use an interior designer. Uh, I use one now and I used one before. And I remember I was just talking to her randomly and, she, and I was like, why does my pillow cost that much? She was like, <laughs> she was like, listen, this is cheap. She's like, I just did a client's pillow yesterday. It was 10 grand. I said, for a pillow? She said, yeah, for a pillow. So the, these things can get really, can get really ridiculous. I mean, yes. you can spend literally thousands of dollars per yard <laughs> right. on fabric that's yeah. custom made in Venice. Mm. You know, it's like, I, but why? Yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around it. For some people, it's great, but that is a pure luxury, though. And it education is. should not be. It shouldn't be. No, that's a great point. So my, my other question, my, my next question was really, you answered a lot of it, but I'll let you go into further detail, which is really talking about why do you think education in the U.S. is flawed and sort of what are the Asian countries in particular doing better that people here maybe can implement? The equity issue is definitely one. In Japan, there, there was an article published pretty recently, it may have been in The Atlantic. I'm sorry if I am misquoting the source, but it said maybe this is as equitable as education can get talking about the Japanese system. Hmm. And these strong teachers, if there's any kind of a struggling school or a struggling classroom, the strongest teachers are put into those classrooms. And it's considered a part of the important professional development and an honor for that teacher because mm. they can handle it. There are senior wow. teachers that mentor the junior teachers always, without question. They're not just thrown into a classroom. In China, if there are schools that aren't doing as well, they are partnered with more, with thriving schools and or even the thriving school will take over the management of that lesser school. And then we, when we talk about funding too, it's equitable. So for instance, it's not equal, meaning, okay, we'll give $40 per student to educate them in this place and then 40 in, in another place because the cost of living is different. Yeah. And then their home resources are very different as well, right? There's a whole social reproduction theory whereby if you are educated parents and have the means, right, it's, it's much easier or or it, it's just kind of natural for your children to be that much more educated and to have a leg up. But if you come from a family that may not be as educated or not have the funds, then society has to make up that difference. So maybe they need $100 more per pupil spending than the family that comes from a more advantageous background. So they actually make some some adjustments for that. Exactly. Wow. So the, okay. so the countries that have equitable funding, our our country for the most part has a forty five forty five ten. It's on average funding model. So forty five percent typically comes from local taxes, forty five percent from the state, and then ten percent from the federal government. And you know, in the United States, the Department of Education was an afterthought, right? Because it was states' rights. So if you're not going to collect the tax dollars at the local level, your state government is responsible for equitably 
subsidizing mm. that district's um, education spending per, per pupil. And that that has to be addressed in this country. The fact yeah. that it's not is, and, and we worry about, you know, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. And someone asked me recently, you know, the whole Varsity Blues scandal where celebrities were found mm-hmm. basically paying their kids' ways into colleges. And someone said, oh, isn't that great? You know, now we're going to, now it's going to level the playing field. And I said, are you kidding? It's just going to go deeper underground. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's... Yeah. it's I just get smarter at not getting caught. Absolutely. <laughs> much more so. Um, this has probably been going on for a long time. Oh, anyway. it's been going on. It yeah. really surprised me that it took this long for it to come out. And something else that I would definitely say that we should be doing, and this is also at the state level, is our teachers. We don't spend enough to recruit the best and the brightest and to retain them and to to invest in their professional development. I don't fault a teacher at all by, you know, saying they they don't work as hard. I've heard this all the time. They don't work as hard. Recently I did an interview with a with a very conservative um radio host and he said they're underworked, overpaid, and basically lazy. And you, you know, you you can't say that, right? Because we have the system whereby they're underpaid, they're not trained. Right. And we're not recruiting the, the top students who do become engineers or maybe lawyers or doctors. Yeah. And in other countries, it's very, very hard to become a teacher because the requirements are so high. And in Japan, in 2014, for 38,000 spaces, there were over 200,000 applicants. And the teachers had to do everything from sight sing and sight read, keyboard, swim every kind of a lap in the pool, mm. um, in elementary school, be able to, to teach any kind of a subject twirl on the bars, and then they have to get recredentialed every five to 10 years. And it's a really, really hard examination. And it goes over pedagogy and child development. And another amazing thing that they do in Japan, which I was floored by, and I, and I talk about this in, in world class, which is the elementary school teachers basically are not allowed to teach the same grade level more than two years in a row. So for their professional development, elementary school goes from grades one through six. They know what's going on. The second grade teacher knows what's going on in sixth and third because they're always switching the grade, right? So they know where the kids are coming from and where they're going. Mm. And not only that, when you talk about equity within the school district, these teachers are not allowed to stay unless they're very geographically isolated schools. These teachers aren't allowed to stay in the same school for more than two or three years. Mm. So you make sure there's no good school and no bad school. Got it. The talent gets moved around. Yeah, and it's and yeah. it's also good for their professional development because they don't just stay in the same classroom for 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Which is a very common US model. Sure. Yeah, my daughter, my so my daughter, my oldest daughter is 15. She's in um in high school and I was talking to her yesterday. She was like, "Oh, my teacher's so terrible. He just sits up there and he just reads to us. He doesn't really answer the questions." That I have. And I was like, you know, Nia, you need, because both my parents are teachers. So I said, Nia, okay. you know, you got to remember this guy has a, a, a curriculum he's got to get through. And so it may seem, you know, boring, but he's he's got a job to do. And basically his job says you got to get through this information in this amount of time. And if you don't get through it, then he's behind. So I just encourage her to go to his uh, office hours mm-hmm. and, you know, ask questions outside of class. But I mean, I feel the pain of teachers having, you know, grown up with, with two teachers. And uh, it's, it's, it's not easy, but some of the things you're talking about are like amazing. And you wonder if you saw this, you know, firsthand, how come we're not, you know, taking some of these tools and using them here? It, you know, it makes, it makes you wonder, do we really want to improve the system? 
or is it just laziness? I, I you know, I don't know the answer. You know, on a on a on a more top level conversation, I would say something that really struck me is all the technology that was in our classrooms when we right. got back to right. California to the U.S. and I thought maybe this is because we're in the middle of Silicon Valley, that every kid has an iPad or in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Or a computer, some kind of a laptop Chromebook, which, every, you know, Google was touting. It's only $200 per pupil kind of a thing. And then you have Apple classrooms and Apple teachers. And the kids have smartphones from, you know, you go to a restaurant, 18-month-olds are put in front oh, of their gosh. iPhones, right? And <sighs> I heard you say in an interview, your kids don't have smartphones. I was so happy with, with that. Yeah. I, they, that's what I'm trying. I'm going to try to do that. I hope I'll. They don't. I mean, because think about the default, right? For me, it's go read your book. Right. You shouldn't be bored. And and nothing is more couch potato-like or couch (laughs) potato-inducing than giving your kid an iPhone. You just sit there as a passive. And how much of it actually sticks in your brain? Yeah. It's just a time waster. It is. So when we went back to California, though, and I saw all this technology in the classrooms, it's like, who's behind all this? Right? And I understand the classrooms and the teachers may feel underfunded or unsupported. So when they are given gadgets, gizmos, apps, they're like, oh, this is great. This is going to solve for this problem I have in my classroom. But then you really look at it and you look at Apple and Google and Amazon and all these corporate interests that come into the classrooms. And I really feel like technology disintermediates the relationship between Mm. the teacher and the student. Because, Mm. you know, back when I was in school, and I would guess that we're around the same age, Mm -hmm. you know, if you showed your work in math, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, I'm older than you. Um, (laughs) um, Just by a few years. Okay. But you don't, you don't, you you know, can't see. So good. Oh, it's good. You're doing something right. Um, when, When you look at kids' math, when we did math, you saw... Maybe she's not carrying over when she's doing math. She's not carrying over the number to add. Maybe she's, you know, the the variables incorrect. Or you actually physically saw the work. Whereas now, if you're doing math on an on a computer, you're not seeing that, and the yeah. answers are multiple. You don't yeah. know what the problem really is, and right. kids don't know how to write. They're not learning basic grammar. They're yeah. all of these things, and you can't appreciate Shakespeare if you haven't studied the foundations of our. English language, you know, and, and that creates a whole host of other issues, which, you know, discipline, perseverance, patience, I mean, and social emotional learning. I mean, you know, it's much easier to bully someone online. We don't have to look at them face to face. Right. Yes. Right. The bully move. Right. Right. Coward move. Yeah. When I look at the issues, I look at the kind of the corporate interest and something that I'm blown away by. And I don't know if anybody else has done this. I, I may have odd curiosities, right? Because I'm into education. But I did spend time in a lot of the schools across the country in the 2017-18 academic year. And I spent time in Miami-Dade, which is the the country's fourth largest school district. And this isn't unique to Miami-Dade, but if you go to their website, they have a whole page on lobbyists. And you can see what lobby groups have come in to the district because by law, they they have to make this public. And Apple, the most recent, I think it was in there three, four, five times um, this past academic year. And that's kind of a scary thing because mm. you don't have that in in the countries where I was in Asia, in the cities. And then when you think about the corporate interests too, it's in their best interest to make money, right? And to sell textbooks. So to come up with the latest and greatest curricular innovation. And so school districts have to buy, they feel like they have to buy new textbooks every few years. And I was in some classrooms you know, and I talk about this in world class where I went to a, a, an underfunded school district in California, East Palo Alto. And at the end of the class, the teacher said, 
you know, for all of you who don't have smartphones, come at the end of class and get books. Mm. Wow. What? Horrible. So the kids are reading on their smartphones. And if they, and I said, why doesn't everybody just get a textbook? And he said, because we can't afford it. Wow. I mean, on so many (laughs) levels, right? That's kind of screwed up. That's a problem. Yeah. One of the other things you talk about, and this is actually my wife's question, which we were talking about you this morning. One one of the other things (laughs) that you talk about is how in Asia, the children are really engaged to be independent at an early age, Mm -hmm. right? Five, six, seven, going, you know, taking themselves to school, that kind of thing. Yeah. And her question was, you know, although we believe that and we try to engender that in our children as well, do you think that that type of um, independence is more difficult here because, you know, it's just not as safe. Other countries are more safe. There's more of a reverence for children and women. You know, what what do you think about that idea that over here, we need to kind of keep them a little bit more close to the vest just because of just, you know, it being dangerous? So I grapple with that question all the time because when we were in Asia, we left when my youngest was six and six is pretty much the age in Japan where kids are left to travel to and from school to their after school activities yeah. on their own. Yeah. And that includes a one hour plus, maybe for some kids, commute to school, which includes public transportation and multiple from, a, from walking to bus to train yes. to walking. Yes. Um, it's six years old, right? Yes. And then when we came back to the US though, I was like, okay, so do I pull in the reins and not let them have the independence that they're used to? I think there's so many things going on. And like you mentioned, in Japan, there's such a reverence for these children and mm. so much protection. And people, for the most part, follow the rules, right? Yeah. Nobody's cutting, not nobody, but you don't, you don't cut the line. Child abduction and all you, you that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and certainly there are few, if any, guns. And it's, there's, there's very little theft, right? Mm. You can drop literally a wallet on the street with $1,000 and it will find its way back to you with everything intact. So, you know, when you think about the kids walking around on their own, they're for the most part, very, very safe. And the first graders even have a special yellow flap on the back of their backpacks to show they're first graders. And so we have to be extra careful for them. And it's not just the adults in the community, it's the other students who know, oh, we're gonna take care of the first graders, like the second graders, everybody will take care of the first graders. And in this country, I feel like people will say, oh, you're putting a target on the most vulnerable person's back. Why would you tell anybody they're only, you know, sixth grade or right. six years six years old and in yeah. first grade? And I think what we can do in this country, I, I think we go to extremes to protect our children. And I think in my life, nothing is hurt more than parenting, mm. right? I mean, when your child is hurt, you, you try not to show them necessarily, but it like kills you inside. Of course. And when they go off to do something and they may not succeed or... It really hurts. But I think we hold on to them too closely in this country. And, and I was having this conversation with a good friend of mine, and she was talking about her son just went to a summer program, and he's in middle school. And she said, I'm so sad. He's eating alone tonight. He's by himself. He has no one to talk to, and I don't know what to do. And I just said, well, how long has he been there? And she goes, tonight's his first night. And I thought, well, back in the day, you wouldn't have even, our parents wouldn't have known that because we would have had no way to communicate, <laughs> right. right? So we kind of just dealt with it. And we've all had plenty of times, I think most of us who've sat alone somewhere, yeah. felt lonely, but it builds up a resiliency that kids today are criticized for not having the millennial generation, but yeah. it's also the way we parent them. And we're in constant communication with them for the most part, because they have smartphones or on social media, they're communicating with each other, Right. right? 
But the irony is that this generation is more lonely than right, more disconnected, mis- more disconnected, yeah. even though they are apparently connected. Right. So I would say give them more freedom and more latitude, <laughs> even if it may feel so painful for you, because. Something that I talk about, and oftentimes parents look at me like I have 20 heads, but you know, who's, this is, you know, I say, whose interest is being met when you give them a smartphone? Is it for you? Because I often hear they're safer that way. Yes. But if they're walking. You have a regular phone. Yeah, you exactly. A, fl- a flip phone. My right. kids have flip phones. My oldest yeah. is 15. If it's about communication, yeah. use a flip phone. Just get a flip phone. Yeah. Um, so is it meeting your interest or their interest? Because it may be in the child's interest to have more freedom and to make mistakes. My son said to me, my middle son, um, I think he said it last year, he said, it's so much better in Japan when kids aren't watched over all the time. Mm. And I said, why? He said, because not only do you make more mistakes and learn from your mistakes, he said, but you make really, you, you make better friendships. And I thought about that. And That's the 15-year-old? At the time, what, he said this when he was 12. 12, okay. Wow. And I thought it was interesting, right? Because there's so much kind of hovering. And I have not met a parent who has not been regretful of having given their child an iPhone too early, right? Every parent says, wait yeah. as long as you can, wait as long as you can. Yeah. I went to a middle school talk um, at, my, at my daughter's uh, school. And, and in her school, middle school starts in fourth grade. It's very early. Okay. And early. she said, wait as long as possible to give your kids iPhones. And and I think it took her a lot of courage to say that because there were plenty of parents in that room who had given (laughs) their kids iPhones from the time they were in first grade, you know? Yeah, Um, too much. So I do feel like there is a middle ground. And, you know, with that whole independence thing, it can start with being a part of your community and rolling up your sleeves. I I was told recently, why is it that in in, in our kids' generation, when they create a Christmas list, do we have to give them everything on the list? And I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting because I got one gift, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of this generation where they, they lead the charge, but we're kind of letting them too. Yeah. So I think parents just have to be stricter and have higher expectations of these kids within the household as well. Give them chores and not for money, but because right. it's their it's the duty. Right thing to do. It's the yeah. right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, and, and sometimes and I digress just a little bit, but no, this kind of fine. stuff drives me it's nuts. Important. It's yeah. like when I go to the gym and the corridors are very narrow and people leave their locker doors open and you can't walk by if they haven't closed them. And I'm always right. the weirdo, you know, I'm like closing everybody's locker door. Right. And I'm thinking, why who don't- raise them? Who raised right. them? <laughs> right. Who raised them? What, do they think it's normal? Like right. just- Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah. It's their world. Or when you go to the movie theater and people leave popcorn and buckets and napkins and soda and, and straw wrappers all over, right. it's like, just because you paid 10 bucks for a ticket, does that entitle you to leave a total mess yes, for the yes. people who were- This is my world. This is, it's, you know- And, <laughs> and it, nobody else lives in it. You know, but if we don't, <laughs> as parents, teach our kids these values, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you let them go into yeah. the world as independent contributing members of society? And in Japan, that's done so beautifully from preschool. I read a stat that said that the- intelligence of a child is directly related to the parent that is like basically with them the most. Absolutely. And um, this is, it's a side note, but it's basically what you're saying, that we really need to pour into these children, the values that we want to see. And that's something that I think about all the time, the values. When you go into a Japanese classroom, it's not rare to see their signs and posters, how to hold a pencil. And this isn't, but you know, here it's like, I can hold a pencil, however one, if I want to hold it like this, or I want to hold it, you know, on the back or whatever you can do it. And they're, and they're, you know, this is how you sit with your two feet down on the floor, sitting up straight. 
at the beginning of class, you bow to the teacher. At the end of class, you say thank you and you bow every single period. Yeah. Oftentimes when you ask a question or you're called upon, you literally stand up, push your chair in, and then respond because you're showing respect. And, and these are values, but in our U.S., you know, and this is the excuse that I hear. And, and I don't even want to call it an excuse. It's just kind of the accepted practice where we say we're such a multicultural country yeah. that we can't teach values. Because the values of oh, one that's household, nonsense. That's nonsense. it's not right. It's nonsense. Because respect is respect. Yeah, nonsense. It's you know, nonsense. But yeah. sometimes, and teachers are fearful, and I can understand this. Some parents will get very angry about, well, you're infringing upon my child's freedoms by telling them what to believe or not to believe. And mm, yeah, okay. and and I and I and I dis- I, I don't want that to be the case. Yeah. But that often happens, and then you have teachers who definitely feel overwhelmed by the teaching responsibilities that they have. Right. So they're just trying to get through the curriculum. They're just trying to get through it. And teach values. Exactly. But then, but you know, when you, when you think about their teacher credentialing process, I have yet to see any teacher, uh, and it's done by state, any, any um, school of education that requires knowing fully about child development, values, morals, how to teach that, hmm. and how to even interact with parents. Which yeah. is which is yeah. a vital, you know, the yep. home school partnership is so important, and I've yet to see a school, a college of education, teach that. Yeah, you know, and in Japan and in China, it's part of the it's part of the curriculum to become wow. a teacher. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I want to jump ship a little bit. Yes. I have a lot of uh, creatives who listen to the show. Awesome. How would you mentor the writers out there? about the process of getting a book proposal done, submitted, and then ultimately be getting published? That is a very good question. And one that's just going to be probably a stream of consciousness. <laughs> stream, I, stream on. I had the idea to write World Class, and it had a very different, not so good working title previously that I'm not even going to mention. Um, <laughs> World Class is a great title. It's a, it's a good it's, title. It's like I, I was five, happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Different meanings. But I went back to school for my master's in comparative and international education in 2011. And then in 2013, I started doing education journalism. Okay. And that was the same time that I had the idea to write a book. And it was really based on this whole idea of eat, pray, love, if you can remember that book. And it was, oh my gosh, I have that story because it's Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo. I have the same story arc. Right. But my first stab at it was really bad. It was just pure sing-songy memoir. And that's I'm not really like a... A, a wax nostalgic kind of a person. And I thought, oh my God, if something happens to me and I get hit by a car, God forbid, and this is what, I don't want this to be published. Sure. You know, so I, I dropped that. And then another one became very academic. And I thought, this is so boring. I would never read it. And then only when I got back to the US in 2016 with my three kids, I say, okay, now I have a book I can write. I was, I was pretty, I don't know what the word is, maybe overly confident at the time thinking, okay, so I'm in my 40s. I'm not going to write a manuscript and sell it. I'm going to do this off a book proposal right. because I frankly don't have time and I, I, I'm not going to have my heart broken like that. And that's, that's the normal course for most first time authors, right? <clears throat> I worked on my book proposal from the, and I think in academic years, from the 2016 to 17 academic year. And I was also, I went back to school for my second master's at the same time. Did you work on it with a consultant or you just worked on it by yourself? I did have a consultant because okay. I had no idea Okay. what a book proposal was. Um, I'm also really, really picky with every word. So I needed to make sure there was a balance of my being overly finicky with 
making sure I checked all the right boxes for writing a book proposal because a book proposal is in essence a, a business plan, right? But for a book, so then I was very fortunate that I, I sent the um, book proposal out to ten agents in three verticals: memoir, parenting, and narrative nonfiction. And okay. I had my own rules for myself. I said, I'm only going to pitch the top in each category. I only want to work with a woman because my book, I felt like a woman is going to get it because it's about Got my it. journey as Got a mom. It. Got it. And in the summer of, I want to say 2014, I went to a writer's conference in New York City in August. I happened to have been in New York visiting family. And I went and there was this thing called a pitch slam. And it's basically speed dating. I think I had nine, no, three minutes to be in a room. I think there were about 50 or 60 agents and there's a bell, you know, in the middle mm-hmm. and you get, you're supposed to pitch for 90 seconds. They respond to you in 90 seconds and then you move on bell rings. Okay. And everybody's told, don't you dare come in here. Cause it's mostly first time, first time wannabe authors. Don't come in here without a finished manuscript. I did not have a finished manuscript, but I thought yeah. I'm in New York. I'm never here. I'm living in Tokyo. I'm just going to go in. And there was one agent that I really wanted to meet and work with. Cause she, I just, I liked her ideas. I liked, and so fast forward, um, how many, three years later, she's the agent I ultimately signed with. Nice. And I don't think that happens. And she actually says of all the conferences she's ever been to, I'm the only person she's ever signed off a a conference. Yeah. So I was, I was very lucky in that respect. And then I was lucky that my book proposal went to auction. And so in that regard, it was too easy. Then I had a year to write, like I mentioned earlier, I had a year to write the manuscript and then a year before it came out and it just came out. And I would say, did you uh, really quick, did you have a schedule for yourself in that year? Oh, that's I'm a gonna really do good question. I'm going to do a certain amount of pages a day. I'm going to do this, you know, that kind of thing. It's a haunting process. Oh, I know. Because I mean, there were months where like nothing good came out. <laughs> nothing. I have whiteboard after whiteboard of frameworks of stories, stories that don't make sense. Why is this story haunting me? What, what's the purpose of it? Do I include it? Mm. The amount of stuff left on the cutting room floor, the research I had to do because it was 50% research, getting the right people involved because a lot of the research was in Chinese and in Japanese and I mm. couldn't do it all. So finding yeah. the right researcher in Japan or who, excuse my tummies, I guess I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> the right people who could do the Japanese and Chinese research was also challenging yeah. and making sure I got the, the strongest research and then traveling the country and meeting people to make sure I had uh, firsthand knowledge um, of the people who were in the field. And it was horrible. It was yeah. like a, it was a really, really tough. And I love editing because I, I, in my journalism work, I, I liked writing. I loved editing, mm. um, which is, I, I understand, rare too. So I figured when the editing process finally came, I'd be great. And that was brutal. I mean, even the editing was brutal because there I am tearing apart my own work. And it's not like you have so much time. I had a year to write this yeah. thing. When I was writing yeah. articles, yeah. I had like 24 hours done. You know, even if I had a week, there was a deadline. And once you submitted it, that was it. And it people is. don't really, I mean, my work does get cited in uh, academic research, but it's kind of like this book is going to be on the shelf for a while, I hope. In my articles, I don't know who's going to go back and really read them. Yeah, It's just a very different mentality. So I always thought, okay, so, you know, all these famous Thoreau or all these people, they sat at their desks. They were, I don't know about Thoreau. I kind of threw that out there, but you know, they sit at their way, they wake up, they have their coffee and yep. you know, they, they sit at their desk from nine to five and then they do that. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so not like that. You know, so I mean, I was like, am I allowed to be writing in bed? You know, I like, I was like, <laughs> I'd have these like conversations with myself or, you know, is it okay that I'm in a coffee shop 
or, you know, and then, and then you get hung up on the ridiculous stuff. Like these headphones aren't strong enough, so I can't write today. You know, it's like that. (laughs) Nobody cares about that. Like if you can write, you can write, you know, there's so many excuses that you make for yourself. But you got it done. I did. So so the the answer is you didn't really have a schedule. You just kind of, you just push forward. I did. But I will say my manuscript was due August, end of August, 2018. And I called my agent. I believe it was a very end of July. And I said, I, this is horrible. My manuscript is, excuse me, shit. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I, I'm just going to take the penalty. I'm not going to have a book. And she goes, you're right on schedule. All my authors say one, uh, about a month. Actually, you're, you're two weeks late. Most authors have the freak out right about now. Mm. So don't worry about it. And that kind of made me feel better. I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm not a total lunatic. Um, but there were many times, and I still say this, I understand why Van Gogh cut off his ear. Like it's, it's a, and it's such a lonely process. Yeah. And, and so I made myself to, every day I would go out. It didn't matter what I did. Um, and I'd force myself to meet someone at least once a day. So I wouldn't go totally stir crazy. Right. right. It's really hard. And, and, the, and the thing that I wasn't prepared for is how hard it is after your book comes out. Hard in terms of what? The feedback or just doing this kind of stuff? Yeah. And you know, how many books make the New York Times bestseller list? You know, not Not many. many. Yeah. So the day my book came out, I was like, I felt like a pine cone fell in the middle of the winter in a forest and nobody knows. You know, it's just like another pine cone. And so your life doesn't change overnight. No. And it's a long slog and it's kind of, it just starts when your book is published. And considering like the, the, two-year lead up to even get it published and to think that's just when it starts. Yeah. I mean, maybe thank God I didn't know, you know, because maybe <laughs> I wouldn't have done it, but it's, it's a long slog. Are you familiar with uh, Hal Elrod? No. He wrote a book called Miracle Mornings. But just to give you some context, his book, it was out 18 months before he actually, like now he's sold millions and millions of copies. He's done about 15 offshoot books from that. Wow. He's very well off from his publishing career. But to your point, he had to figure out a strategy. Yeah. Once it came out and that pine cone dropped and, you know, nobody, you know, looked around. It's, it is tough. It's it is really tough. hard. It is tough. So for the people listening, just know that, uh, you know, it's a process, but if you're committed to it and you feel passionate about what you're writing about, it's going to happen eventually. Well, Taru, that's all I've got. I mean, unless you have something else to say to the people. Well, first of all, tell tell the people how they can um, reach you, where they can purchase the book from, how they can learn more about what you're doing. So uh, my website, taruclavelle.com. Okay. And you can find my book, World Class, on Amazon. And I love having these conversations and these discussions about education, about parenting. I have to bring up my social media, bring LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. But the book is 50% memoir, 50% research. And I try to be as real as possible about my misconceptions, having put my kids into the local schools of Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Tokyo, Mm -hmm. and kind of how that unraveled and how it showed me a new way to see education. So if anybody reads my book or is a little nervous about reading it, let's say, it's not that I say they do it better because I went in thinking, this is crazy. Like, why is my kid staying after class? Because he didn't get a 95 on a quiz. Yeah. Or, you know, why does my kid have to take a rag to school every day to clean the school building? And it's about, yeah. And it's about how all of that kind of came undone, my preconceived notions and how I came to see actually, wow, there's a better way. Mm. And look at the outcomes. These kids are independent. They are 
higher achievers academically, they have values, they're ambitious, they're resilient, they're disciplined. And it really became much clearer to me when I came back to the US and didn't see those things happening. Yeah. So it is a journey. It's my journey. But I think that any reader would, and there's a lot of humor in there too. I, I definitely poke fun at myself. <laughs> but I think a reader will go on that journey too and, and maybe leave the judgment behind, which is something I definitely had going in, even though I wanted to think of myself as much more open-minded. So yes, if, if you want to continue the conversation, definitely pick up a book. I, I recorded the audio too. So for all oh, of the you- Oh, the audio book. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So. How long did that take you? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so for an eight plus hour audiobook, which I thought was so long and I, you know, and I'm somewhat humble. I don't know, but I was like, oh my God, someone has to listen to me for almost nine hours. <laughs> I don't want to listen to myself. But for that long a recording, I was in the studio for 30 hours. Wow. And you have to sit, you know, sit, oh, uh, sit yeah, silent, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, Whoa. I mean, so when my, my tummy grumbled earlier, right. I'd apologize to you because when that happened, when I was recording, do it again, you know, anytime, like if you put a pencil, if you breathe the wrong way, yeah. you know, at one point I did this, I lifted my arms up to stretch while I was reading. And they said, uh, excuse me, true. You have to do the whole thing again. I was like, it was just my arms, but it changed the acoustics in the room. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right, Tarul Clavel, thank you so much for coming on The Truth Prescription. I think the listeners got a lot today. You're awesome, Dr. uh, G. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it.